Did you cut your hair? Check it out. It looks good. You look fresh. Reminds me. It takes me back. Takes me back to our early days. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is sort of similar. I mean, it's like the length your hair was when we first met on that dark and stormy night. I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel kind of good about it, you know? Yeah? Yeah. Great. I feel As good. well you should. Thank you. Thank you. As well you should. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I just got, um, I just came in from outside. I was hatcheting a tree stump away in the backyard. Oh, hatcheting a tree stump away. Okay. So you're just like chopping the tree stump to be a smaller tree stump? Yeah, chopping it down, just getting rid of a stump in the backyard. Got it. That's wild that stumps are so hard to get out. You don't think about it often, but if one's in your way, it's like a real problem. You got to do some work to solve it. Yes, yes. That's been my life. That's very trad. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, what else is happening? You know, I have a puppy in my lap, I should say. I have a puppy in my lap. He's very warm. People like the Skeeter photos, by the way. Oh, good. I'm glad. People left many positive comments. Yeah, you know, he's he's a charmer. He's a he's a very yeah, handsome man. He's animal. great. He's a dog of the people. He's a real dog of the people. Yes, he is. Well, except he would attempt to kill any person that he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's gonna be fun for you to meet him. He's a dog of the people on social media. Yes, yes, yes. But very, very reclusive. He'd make a yeah. perfect celebrity, really. Mm-hmm. He is. He's doing it already. Yeah. He's building his brand. He's a micro-celebrity. He's a micro-influencer, literally, because he's tiny. He is very tiny. He's a big influence on my heart, though. Oh, I know. Okay. I know. How are you, Hava? Baruch Hashem. I'm well. I just had a cup of coffee, so I'm pepped for this. I am preparing for surgery on the 28th. I'm feeling very like a hurry-up-and-wait kind of feeling, you know, because it's like the surgery got moved up by like a bunch of months. So it feels really urgent and soon. But I also still have like two weeks of normal activities I have to get through. So it's like one part of my brain is like, oh shit, here it's it's coming. It's coming. You better get ready. But then the other part of my brain is like, you still have to do your normal schedule that you planned for yourself for these two weeks. So it's a very cognitive dissonance kind of vibe. Yeah, you're in a weird space that I don't think our primate brains are able to comprehend no no like urgent things that are coming but are not here yet yeah but they're coming and it involves cutting you open but you kind of want it to happen (laughs) it's very hard yeah so yeah so i'm not in a bad mood i'm just in like a weird weird little zone right now i sort of had this vision for how my year was gonna go for like the remainder of my year and now that surgery has gotten moved up it's like the rest of my year is sort of a black box until that is done. You know, I like suddenly can't really know what the rest of my year is going to be like because I have to see how this goes first. Right. Because it could be quick and easy, hopefully. Mm-hmm, or, God willing. You know, it could take more time. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff feels very up in the air in that sense. I had a really nice session of my teaching fellowship, my Talmud teaching fellowship this afternoon. Part of what we were doing was we were writing down and sharing with each other our Talmud stories. Like what was the first time you studied Talmud? What was the first time you remember loving studying Talmud? Just like going back through that journey in my mind really reminded me that I love Talmud and it was really nice to be reawakened to the joy. That was just so sincere. 
<laughs> I just can't right now. I know it's toxic to you, but it's so bad. Why would you say that to me, Hama? Y- you love it. You love it. Uh, it's what you seek. It's what you crave. It's kind of like someone who likes to be like ashamed or something. You know, it's a kink. It's very. It's, it's similar yeah. to the kink. It's a kink. You like to be sincerity shamed. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of true. But I require all the theater. You know, all the theatrics around. Right. You need to protest too much. It can't just be sincere right off the bat. Right. I mean, you need someone very special like me who can do both. The cynicism and the sincerity. Who can lure you into a false sense of security that you'll be safe in your cynical world and then stab you in the back with a knife of sincerity. Yeah. It's like you're a sincere and matrix. You're a... (laughs) This is like a really elaborate service I'm providing for you. Yeah, that's true. You're welcome. Now I feel like since this is like an adult (laughs) podcast, we should be charging Uh, more It's always been an adult podcast, baby. it's always been an adult podcast. If you're not an adult, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Oh, I mean, it's a, it's, skeeter. you know, everyone has to make their own choices about listening and what they allow their kids to listen to. But we talk about adult topics on this podcast. That's just a fact. So, yes. Oh, also in my class, someone said they really like the Russian doll episodes and that we should make more, which brings us to our present topic. Russian Doll, episode seven. Season one, episode seven. A real banger of an episode, if I do say so myself. Oh, yeah. Hard to summarize because there's a lot of flashbacks, lots Mm -hmm. going on, lots of realizations by characters and death loops. Right. Well, let's start. Let's just start with our summary. All right. As we always do. Yes. We open flashback. Baby Nadia, child Nadia in the car with her mother. Chloe Sevigny, a frizzy-haired, redhead Chloe Sevigny, running all over town, searching for watermelons, getting into fights with all the guys at the bodega, and just generally being a lot. And people are very concerned for baby Nadia. Ruth shows up in this Ruth flashback, and Ruth is very concerned for baby Nadia. So it's a big flashback, basically, of like how intense her mom was and also how everyone around her was concerned for her all the yes. time. Yep, 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 yep. So then we return to the present. Alan and Nadia are talking about how Alan killed himself, and that's what started the loop for him. And he thinks he's dead, and that's why they're in the loop. But then Nadia's like, actually, I figured out why we're in the loop. It's because I saw you in the bodega the very first cycle, and you were drunk, and I could have helped you, and I didn't because I chose to raz some assholes and so that's why we're in this loop and alan is like of course we're being punished and nadia's like no it's just a glitch a glitch of time she has this really cool talk where she gets one of the rotten oranges that have been ominously sitting in different shots throughout the show and she's like in the fourth dimension of time this orange is still ripe. I don't. I, I don't know. It was a great monologue, but I can't like uh, reconstruct it myself. No, it, it didn't make sense. I loved it. It seemed like an excuse for the props people to not get a real rotten orange and just paint <laughs> the outside of a fresh orange. But also, this show is not about really particle physics. No, of no. Why this happens? No, it's no, no, about no. it's it's a fable, as we've discussed many times before. No, this show. It's not trying to be Inception. Right. Thank God. Didn't like that movie. They realize that 
people are disappearing in the loops now. Alan is like, oh shit, this could be the last time we see each other. I have to go th- make things right with Beatrice. Nadia is like, fuck you. How dare you leave me? And Alan is like, this might be the last thing you ever say to me. He says something really great, which is, you're the most selfish person I've ever met. Thank you for changing my life. Lives are hard to change. Yeah, that was cute. Great line. And he goes off to make things right with Beatrice. And Nadia goes home to get her friends to sort of take them under her wing and try to make sure they don't disappear. And so Nadia goes to the bodega because she and Alan are supposed to meet at the bodega. When she's trying to go to the bodega, she keeps seeing her child self. And every time she sees her child self, she dies. Wait, a question. What does Nadia do when Alan goes to talk to Beatrice? What's her thing that she does? She goes to get her friends because she doesn't want them to disappear. But she doesn't know that they're disappearing quite yet. I think she does at this point. No, 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 no. Yeah. She sees herself on the street. She goes outside and sees herself on the street and has a heart attack. Oh, okay. Backtrack. She goes out while Alan goes to see Beatrice. Yeah. She sees her child self, seemingly a hallucination of her child self, and she dies. And so they both resurrect, and basically they make an agreement to try and meet at the bodega. Right, right, right. And Nadia keeps trying to go to the bodega, and she keeps seeing hallucinations of her child self and dying. Oh, did the agreement about what they need to do come last? Fuck. I took bad summary notes. Here's the real deal. Okay, Okay, here's what I think is enough summary. A bunch of timey-wimey stuff happens. Yes. Nadia keeps seeing her child self and dying. Ultimately, we come to the conclusion that they need to make things right in their lives. Alan's way of doing that is to go talk to Beatrice. And Nadia's way of doing that, she doesn't know how to do it because her mom is dead, but she starts by going to talk to Ruth. Yes, yeah. So Alan talks to Beatrice and has this really great talk where he is totally accepting of Beatrice's choices and self. It's just great. I wrote down a little line from this speech in my text sheet. Alan, in his monologue, he's talking about how he should have known that Beatrice was like basically not in love with him anymore. And he says, no matter how much we think are fooling people, our bodies, they can't keep lying the way our minds can. Mine stopped lying a long time ago. For years, I've just been hollow. You know, I thought if I worked hard enough, if I kept putting the time in, and if I kept my head down, you know, just did everything right, then this aching, gnawing feeling of being an absolute failure would just go away. And now I'm stuck with a body that's broken in a world that is literally falling apart and a mind that wants to kill me, which I thought also some great lines for Alan in this episode. I want to know what happened to Alan when he was a little kid. I something, something fucking did. Also, as we'll learn in season two, generational trauma. We learn a lot more about Alan's family backstory in season two. Oh, interesting. Thank God, because it's really interesting. Cool. Yeah, so Alan has that really great monologue, and Nadia goes and talks to Ruth and has a really beautiful scene that made me cry. I watched this episode twice. I cried both times. You cried during every episode of this show. And it's great. And I love it. And I eat it up. What were Ruth's big reveals that like Nadia finally says, oh, it's my fault. My mom died because Mm -hmm, because I abandoned her because I said I wanted to live with you. But maybe I didn't say it, but I still felt it anyway. But it doesn't matter. And Ruth is like, no, it was going to happen anyway. And Ruth basically is like, 
you were this beautiful little spark of life just like trying to exist in the darkness and like where is that part of you the part that makes me cry is when she asked nadia like do you want to be in this world like do you want to keep living and Nadia yeah, yeah. is like overcome because she realizes she can't answer yes yeah 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 she says i see you and you're like chasing death down every alleyway or something exactly like that. Exactly. So that's the part of the scene that made me cry because I feel like very aware of the part of myself that is like trying so hard to be in this world and very aware that I haven't always been in touch with that. So like the journey of like realizing that that part of you is like not there and trying to like recultivate the will to live and like the will to joy has been like a very real part of my own life. And so I really felt that when Nadia said that. Yeah. And so as part of that conversation, Nadia realizes that what she needs to do is go meet her ex's kid who yes. she blew off all those years ago or months ago. I don't really know how much time it's been. And she needs to bring her Emily of New Moon. Yes. And there is a flashback where it shows Nadia escaping the, the intensity of her mother by reading this book, Emily of New Moon. Mm-hmm. And her mom smashing all the mirrors, which was a big part of the previous episode discussion. So somehow not being a crazy older woman in the life of this little girl who she's impacted peripherally by dating the philandering husband mm -hmm. um, is some sort of motivating force. Right. I mean, she it seems like how I read this is that she realizes that this is the little girl that she's left behind. Yeah. Yeah. And that she can still do something for, you know, like this is the action she can take in this moment. And by being there for this little girl, she can in a way be there for herself. And so she goes to the restaurant and meets a little girl for brunch. And then they have this really sweet talk about Emily of new moon. Nadia has a nosebleed and it turns into this really surreal scene where the little girl is like, she's still inside you. Are you ready to let her die? And Nadia pulls a shard of mirror out of her mouth, which makes an incredibly gross sound, just like nails on a chalkboard. That's the end. The last thing we see is Nadia on the floor, bleeding, possibly dying. This could have been the last episode if they kind of figure it out. They needed to help each other. Mm -hmm. or they needed to make amends. They needed to basically do like a five-step process. And they're finally doing it. They're doing the last step. You could imagine that, yeah, life goes on normally and now they're happy. But no, they die at the end or they yeah. they die maybe at the end. So this mm -hmm. is not the end. Perhaps there's something more complex in the mix. Right. This episode was really beautiful and obviously had a lot of moments that really spoke to me. And also, it had the problem that many penultimate episodes, penultimate books, penultimate comics have, where it's like, you know, from the beginning, that you're going to be left on a cliffhanger, you know, from the beginning, that things are going to get really exciting, and they're not going to be resolved. And that sort of adversely affects your ability to live in the episode, I feel like. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So it was a dense episode, lots of flashbacks, lots of parallel deaths happening for Alan and Nadia. Mm -hmm. Lots of profound statements just like said outright. Yep. Yep. Instead of alluded to through like obscure objects mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> like they have been for the rest of the show. Lots of vulnerability on the part of the characters. Mm -hmm. Everyone's letting their guard down and moving on. And yet there's still death or there's still weird, magical, hallucinatory stuff going on that mm -hmm. is unnerving 
and keeps the audience hooked. Great episode. Great episode. Okay, should you bring a text or should I bring a text first? I'll bring a text. Okay, great. But I need your help because I'm a little confused by this text. It is Bershit Rabbah. So Mm -hmm. I'm bringing some rabbinic literature. Some midrash. That I think is pretty sweet. At least the English translation is pretty sweet. Yeah. But I don't know if I agree with the English translation. So I want to see if it is actually as sweet as I think it is. Okay. Okay, so here's the English translation. Rabbi Judah Bar Simon said, It does not say, let there be evening, but, and it was evening. This is in reference to opening few sections of Genesis. Hence, we derive that there was a time system prior to this. Rabbi Abahu said, this teaches us that God created worlds and destroyed them, saying, this one pleases me, those did not please me. Rabbi Pinchas said, Rabbi Abahu derives this from the verse, and God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good, as if to say, this one pleases me, those others did not please me. Mm, All right, biblical multiverses. Biblical multiverses, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. God destroying and creating worlds just reminds me of what's happening with Nadia, and how oftentimes her deaths are correlated with her doing something kind of stupid or wrong with the exception of this case at the end of the episode where she seems to be kind of trying to do everything right and yet she still ends up at least getting a flesh wound oh i see what you're saying so nadia is sort of parallel to god almost in this case creating her own dissatisfactory worlds well yeah yeah i mean that that's one way of putting it i was looking at it a much more like simplistic way of just god making a judgment call like nah you fucked up boom starting over Mm -hmm. so this is an interesting little drosh on genesis and the hebrew phrase vayahi erev which Mm -hmm. translates to and there was or and there is evening so following some of the verses in genesis and there was evening and then there was day you know and then day two day one things like that right right i'm a little unclear about how the English translation somehow uses this phrase, and there was evening, as opposed to just v'hi erev, is evening. So the Hebrew says v'hi erev isn't stated, but it says v'yehi erev. So with and in front of it is evening. Somehow this addition of an and, that little difference makes us think that there were prior worlds that existed. Mm-hmm. So... My sense of what is happening here. So there's this magical, weird little grammatical thing that we've discussed before that happens in biblical Hebrew called Vav consecutive, Vav hafifuch. There's a couple different names for it, but basically a Vav that comes before a word that flips the tense you would expect for that word. So the first phrase, Yehi Erev, which is what the Bible does not say, which we translate in English as let there be evening is in the just normal-ass future tense, which also functions in Hebrew as the subjunctive, or in this case as the jussive, which is the phrase like, let there be evening, like, it shall be evening, let it be so. I wish there to be evening, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And the phrase that the Torah actually does say, vayahi erev, has the vav that flips the tense so that it is not let there be evening, but just it was evening. It was evening. Okay. And my read subtextually on what's happening with the drush is basically they're saying, 
therefore evening must have just been laying around right right from right. a previous draft yeah yeah so evening is not created like day and night are created but evening is not and evening is set as a marker of time passing day and night are like almost like objects that god creates like the state of the video game that god's created right. but, but evening is a different word that is used and uh, is a demarcator of time which is not previously created by God, so it must have pre-existed at least where the story begins. Mm -hmm. So then there's this whole idea that there's all these other worlds and time pre-existed the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, it does make me think of Nadia's monologue about there being a glitch in time and imagining God in their workshop with just sort of like scraps of time laying around like sawdust, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And this evening is just like in a pile there in like a little mason jar with a piece of masking tape on it that says evening in sharpie yeah it's just crazy shit and i like it yeah it's likable that's it's it. lovable that's it's it. great it's wonderful bring me something Hava. tell me something that you brought so i brought a couple things that have tangential connections and yeah i brought quite a few things to talk about but we'll start with this really fun parable from ta'anit 5b we read, "La'adam shehaya holech ba midbar, wahaya ra'ev wa'ayev wutsame, umatsa ilan sheperota matukin utsilona e, wa'amad hamayim overet tachta. Achal mepterota wushata mimayan wuyashav putsilo." So it's like a man who was walking through the desert and he was hungry and tired and thirsty. He found a tree whose fruits were sweet and whose shade was nice and a stream of water flowed beneath it. And he ate the fruits of the tree and drank the water from the stream and sat in the shade of the tree. And now he says, Then he says to himself, Tree, tree, with what shall I bless you? Which, first of all, I just had to that was one of the things that attracted me to this text is just it's really cute to imagine someone saying to themselves tree tree with what shall i bless you i do think that we should be addressing inanimate objects plants and animals we should be talking to them more for some reason i feel like it would create a better world better outcomes just better yeah. outcomes it's the repetition for me that makes it truly adorable uh oh, the repetition. Tree, tree. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to continue in English for the rest of the story. If I say to you that your fruit should be sweet, your fruits are already sweet. If I say that your shade should be pleasant, your shade is already pleasant. And if I say that a stream of water should flow beneath you, a stream of water already flows beneath you. Rather, I have to say, may it be God's will that all the saplings which they plant from you shall be just like you. And so it is with Yisrael. With what shall I bless you? If I bless you with Torah, you already have Torah. If I bless you with wealth, you already have wealth. If I bless you with children, you already have children. Rather, may it be God's will that your offspring shall be like you. So, yeah, one just cute story, cute parable about a tree, what to get for the tree that has it all. Just very fun concept. And two, thinking about parents and children in this show and thinking about I don't know, like, I imagine, I we can't know into the head of Nadia's mother, but I'm wondering what people were wanting to bless Nadia with, you know? I feel like Ruth is like this big tree that sheltered Nadia through her life, and all of the good parts of Nadia, in my opinion, are sort of like 90% from growing up with Ruth, who seems to just be like a 
pure and magical being of goodness. And also thinking about like, yeah, I don't know. I guess the I guess the main thing I'm thinking about is just how in this story, turning out like your parents is a really big theme and how for all of us, there are certain people that we're excited to turn out like and certain people that we're not excited to turn out like. And I think we all have trees in our lives that have given us shelter that, you know, we're hoping that legacy of kindness is perpetuated from them. Yeah. When I turned 50, I wouldn't mind turning into like a cherry tree. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that sounds great. I guess just like, I don't know, thinking about very few of us have the luxury of having had parents who are like this tree that have all the pleasant qualities that for us to turn out mm -hmm. exactly like them would be a blessing. We're all much more like a mixed bag of good and bad stuff. But the show and this text sort of make me pause or give me a moment to think about like the good legacies that I've received from complicated people. And like in the show, I think a great example of that is like Nadia's mother is really pushing her daughter to be proud of her big, beautiful hair. And I feel like that's a legacy that Nadia carries in to the present. Yeah. And like Nadia's mother is like incredibly sure of herself. And I feel like Nadia carries that. And they're not all perfectly good legacies, but like there are some some gems, some ripe watermelons, you know, amidst the generational legacy and... I think it's nice to have a moment to think about, for me, who has such a complicated relationship with my parents and their qualities as beings, to know that there are pearls within the muck of my generational legacies and that that's how it's always been and that's how it is for so many people and like that's a normal experience and it's okay to like sit with the good and the bad. Yeah, and we're not pearls. <laughs> and also, we are not the pearls. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned watermelons, actually. I want to just bring something quick. Great. Please do. Just a tiny little wisdom from Avodah Zarah, 29A. This is just one of those classic sections where the rabbis are just giving lists of things that mm -hmm. you can use for stuff. <laughs> yeah. And Ten things return the sick to his sickness and to make his illness severe. And these are they, to eat ox meat, fat, roast meat, bird's meat, roast egg, pepperwort, shaving, bathing, cheese, or liver. Some say also nuts. Others add also melons. In the school of Ishmael, it was taught, why are they called kishuim, which we've brought up on the show before. We've translated right. it as cucumbers. Right. But it can also mean melons. Because they are kashin. They are injurious to the whole mm -hmm. human right. body as swords. Yes, they're prickly. They're Hard and stiff, stubbly. But just a reference, you know, to the watermelon scene. I kind of wonder why yeah. it was watermelons that were picked mm -hmm. in that flashback. Her mother just gathering all the watermelons she can get from all the bodegas. Watermelons are like swords. They're like swords? Yeah, they're like swords. Right. What did the rabbis say those things were for? They return the sick to their sickness. Oh, got it. So watermelons just make you more sick, basically. Yeah, if you've recently been sick. Oh, I see. But if not, then it's fine. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. Never thought of watermelons as having that quality. Although, I mean, I can imagine if we want to stretch the drosh, like, I'm sure when Nadia eats watermelon in the present, it returns her to memories of those times that sucked and to her mother. 
you know yeah i mean i think one of the scary flashbacks in the show was watermelon related not just like the funny watermelon kooky kooky watermelons overflowing from your car but there was this scene where her mom was cutting the watermelon really aggressively mm-hmm. yeah that, that wasn't a pleasant scene so yeah it might it might bring her back yeah i kind of wonder if that little bit you know that random little wisdom you know medical wisdom was uh, part of the inspiration for that scene the watermelon yeah connection. that's interesting to think about because we never know which parts of Talmud Natasha Leone has learned already. You know, something we haven't talked about is the bodega. I feel like a lot of the drama happens around produce and bodegas. Yeah, the bodega is a really central character in this show. A lot of revelations happen mm-hmm. in the bodega. And a lot of connections. I wonder what's what's going on there. If, if that's yeah. a Jewish thing or just a New York thing. or The bodega is a powerful place. Yeah. Oh, I really want a deli sandwich right now, actually. <laughs> A grunge girl just walked in with a sandwich, and I told her, "No, don't get me one. Don't get me one. I, I don't worry you about fool. it." You fool! You buffoon! So stupid. Okay, here's another thing. Okay, here's okay. the even more central thing that I brought. Shanim shehayu mehalchin paderech uvidechad mehin kiton shalmaim. This is taught in a brayta that there are two people walking in the wilderness, and there's only one jug of water between them. Im shotim shneihim meitim. So if two of them are walking in the wilderness and they have only one jug of water, if they both drink, they'll die because there's not enough water. But if only one of them drinks, then they'll have enough. That one person will have enough water to get back to civilization. What do you do? Bin Patora, a rabbi who I'd never heard of before this sugya, taught, it's preferable for both of them to drink and die so that neither one has to see the other die. Basically, you should both drink the water and not have enough and die so that you don't have to witness the death of your companion. And this is how everybody thought until, this is literally what it says in the sugya, this is what everyone thought until Rabbi Akiva came. Until Rabbi Akiva came and taught them that the verse, and your brother shall live with you, which comes from Leviticus 25, 35, indicating that your life takes precedence over the life of another. So Rabbi Akiva is quoting this verse, Leviticus 25, 35, and 36. If your kin, being in trouble, come under your authority and are held by you as though resident aliens, let them live by your side. Do not exact advance or accrued interest but fear your god let your kin live by your side as such the drash here that's happening is basically we have this ending phrase let your kin live by your side as such which is unnecessary if you think about it god already said at the beginning of this statement this is what you should do so you don't need to end the statement also saying and so you should do it right okay and so that's why it's ripe for a drash because it's seemingly a superfluous statement And I think what Rabbi Akiva is saying is because the text of the verse is essentially your kin will live with you, like the life of your kin is dependent on the life of yourself. And so therefore, if it comes to a case of only one of you can live, you should drink the water yourself, basically. Whoa. Yes, it's a very um, controversial thought, very, very spicy sugya. And I brought it because of that dialogue with Ruth that I love so much. Because 
what Nadia is struggling with is like she feels like her will to live, basically her will for a better life for herself as a child is what killed her mother. And she's trying to deal with the guilt of choosing to live, which felt like just exactly what is coming up in this sugya. Yeah, wow. So what about you, Michael? Do you drink the water if you and I enter in the desert? No. <laughs> no. no. I can have it. You can have the water. Fuck it. No, no, after you. You know, you, you never know what you're going to do in those extreme circumstances, but I'd, right. I'd like to surround myself with people who I feel like would make that decision, who've like grappled with the idea of their own mortality enough that they would be totally cool dying, like if the Gestapo came or, you know, some shit went down, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but... I mean, I think you could say also the opposite, and this is how... I'm not sure, obviously, I'm not sure whether I would drink the water or not, but... I feel like the times, the very few times in my life, but there have been times where I was in mortal danger, have been like instrumental to strengthening my will to live. So I don't know, a, a Gestapo situation is, is different, I think, than a canteen of water, but I feel like more so coming face to face with mortality has like, uh, I don't know, like instilled me with more will to live. All right. So you and me in the desert, Hava, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm so thirsty, Hava. I'm so thirsty. <laughs> Give my me water. I don't know what I would do. Obviously, I'm sure there would there would be many circumstances leading up to this point where we were both in the desert. But one of us would have to choose, or not, or I don't know. I mean, we'll just have to figure that out. If God forbid we end up there, I think one of the things that's interesting in considering this sugya now is how different it feels to me to think about like, okay, say we accept Nadia's own premise, which is saying that her will to live killed her mother, which I don't think is true. But say we accept yeah. that as true. It feels very different for me for the will to live to be coming from a child, which I think is very interesting. Oh, um, yeah, sure. You know that I'm like, yeah, you had to do that. You were a baby like you, you really couldn't or shouldn't be expected to give the water to anyone else. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, if you were a baby, Hava, like, I'd definitely give you the water. And I feel like... But if, I'm always baby, baby. I know, I know. But if if there was like a time, if there was like a six-year-old Michael hanging out with you in the desert, and right. if you, yeah. you'd, you'd give me the water. Six-year-old Michael would definitely get the water. Yeah, would get the water. Sure. Yeah, I guess it's just interesting, like, how much, I don't know, like, personal responsibility and age and circumstance, like, play into this thought process about the will to live and like about how comfortable we are with someone taking the water part of the reason I, I brought up the gestapo although maybe it's a little corny just that quote just reminded me of like i don't know in one of those famous books where they talk about survivor guilt in the holocaust and stuff like that right. and the, someone saying like oh it's it was like the best people are the ones that died which seems mm -hmm. at odds with this akiva ruling um, right. But then I also think about there are people in your life that drag you down and you kind of have to look out for yourself. You have to be wary of people, too. And that's a different mm -hmm. circumstance. So, I mean, uh, some more things that interest me about this sugya is like, one, it's really interesting that the way the sugya phrases it is basically they accepted the conclusion that both people should die until Rebbe Akiva came along, which is just a really interesting rhetorical framing that like positions Rebbe Akiva as sort of this big innovator. Yeah. Which is uh again a whole episode unto itself. But 
also this creates conflict like if you are both following the accepted conclusion here you both will be thinking that you should be the one to drink the water yeah yeah so do you just hope the other guy hasn't read the verse yeah it's a it's a it's a sugya that leaves me with a lot of questions and i want to bring in a couple more things just to be in the mix because I feel like this is going to be our sort of climactic discussion. And I'm going to bring in two things we've already discussed in the past. So the first one from Erovin 13b. So the sages disagreed for two and a half years, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, and some would say it would be more preferable if man had not been created, and others would say it is preferable that man is created. Ultimately, they considered and they concluded it would have been more preferable for man not to be created, but since he is created, he should examine his actions and seek to correct them. And some say he should scrutinize his planned actions and evaluate whether or not he should do them. So I brought this because it feels like now in the light of this episode that part of what the rabbis are disagreeing about here is almost like survivor's guilt from existing. Yeah. They're basically being like, our existence raises so many problems, spiritually, existentially, because we're not perfect beings, and we feel some kind of way about that. So how do we deal with that? And this is very much the same question that Nadia is being faced with, is like having to sit with the complex feelings she has about her own continued existence and like choosing to move forward, examining her actions in the light of of those feelings yeah yeah it is kind of all related if you boil it down if you trace it back it does kind of come back to the problem of existence Mm -hmm. i think that stuff is cool because there's no reason why we should be thinking about that as a problem it shouldn't even occur to us if you don't believe in something beyond just like the material world that presents itself like it seems like an awfully weird bug in like the operating system of the, <laughs> in the human, human being. consciousness yeah it's like that's not a really convenient bug like what's the advantage of having that question mm-hmm. popping up in your brain so it, it, it's one of those unreducible questions Right. Ultimately, it's like that question leads to the problems of two people in the desert with the water. Right, exactly. They're very connected, which I had never connected them before. And they're also very connected to this episode. Yeah. And I really like, I find affirming the will to survive very beautiful because it's been such an important component of my life. And like connecting with that will to survive has been so essential for me. I'm glad you were, I'm glad you survived. <laughs> Thank you, me too. I actually like the tension between the two. And I think the tension, mm-hmm. I feel like Akiva, whatever, like he's making a call, but I think you can't really reduce down the tension. And I think that's yeah. sort of acknowledged in statements like we shouldn't have existed by the rabbis. But since we do, here's what we have to do. Yeah. One last thing I want to bring sort of another side of this is a text that we talked about not that long ago from the Talmud Yerushalmi Chagiga 2. Rebbe Elisha ben Abuya said to Rebbe Meir, turn back. The Shabbat limit only extends to here. And Rebbe Meir said, how do you know? Elisha responded, 
I've been measuring by the paces of my horse, 2,000 cubits, which are the Shabbat limit. Rebbe Mayer said, all this wisdom is within you and you still don't come back? Alicia said, I cannot. Rebbe Mayer asked, why? Alicia said, because once I was riding in front of the Holy of Holies, riding my horse on Yom Kippur, which fell on Shabbat, and I heard a divine voice reverberating from the Holy of Holies saying, return children, except for Alicia Ben Abuya, who knew my strength and rebelled against me. So to me, this, uh, obviously we all know by now that I'm obsessed with this story, that I love it so much and that I think it's so beautiful and so real and special. And part of what I like about it is I see some connection in Nadia and Alicia Benabuya of just seeing themselves as irretrievably fucked up, basically. Like in this story, Alicia Benabuya is basically like, I continue to be a fuck up because there's no hope for me. At least that's the way he's written here, right? It's like, maybe he would come back if he could, but he feels like he's been permanently cast out from the gaze of all that is good. And I feel like Nadia is very much like that same, living in that same way, living a life that is very like, I had no chance. I was so fucked up by my mother and also... I am so fucked up because I chose to survive. And so I'm just going to be shitty Yeah, yeah to yeah, everyone yeah. at all times, basically. I mean, she doesn't actively fuck people over, but like she also doesn't try to do anything good for anyone most of the time. And it's because I think she's like, there's no hope for me to get better. There's no hope for me to heal. Like God has basically said to me, Everyone can have a better life except for you, Nadia. And a lot of this show is about getting her to the moment where she starts to like stop listening to that voice. Yeah, she pulls herself up by her bootstraps and has a successful startup. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, just as every woman should. Hashtag girl boss. Come in next week for our entrepreneurial seminar. We're starting our high hour you MLM. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Hi, how are you? Like protein bars. That's what you get into. <laughs> so you read that sugya and you're like, Alicia, no, Alicia, no. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I was trying to be like, what's the Alicia? Yes, like you know, <laughs> Alicia, yes. like yeah, whoa, like that's. I mean, deep I think Alicia. there are other places in Talmud where he's written much more as like, yeah, I chose to do this, and here are my ethical reasons why. Right. Like mm -hmm. the reason why he became a heretic, supposedly, is because he saw someone who was a total innocent die doing a mitzvah. And he was like, I can't believe basically if I saw that, I can't believe that there is a God in that story. He's much more like, yeah, this is why I did what I did. And I don't repent about it. That's one of the things that makes this story so good. It's like it's part of what makes Alicia a multifaceted character. So at least in this moment, I feel like he's written more like I would go back if I could. And I think that's partially because he's in the company of Rebbe Mayer, who was his protege. And it's that special relationship that sort of softens him up. And so I think that's, again, very resonant with Russian Doll. Like it's the relationships that Nadia forms that ultimately like crack through her shell enough to really get to that moment. Mm -hmm. And to say like, yeah, you can come back. Like you're allowed to live and you're allowed to be happy, which I think Nadia hasn't let herself even think about believing until this episode. So if you think, okay, let's say she does it, she goes for it, 
what do you think she's going to do? What would change in Nadia's life? <sighs> That's a good question. I mean, I feel like a lot of it would be primarily her approach to her friendships and relationships, right? I mean, right now, it seems like she treats her romantic partners and her friends with callous disregard, basically. Or like, I'm your friend, but also like, I'm not, no one's there for me and I'm not there for anyone. So like, we're cool, but like, we're not that cool, except for Ruth. Right. So I think that's one of the primary things that would change is just like, I imagine she would approach her relationships in a really different way, which she already has with Alan. That's what we've been seeing over the course of this series, I think, is her sort of learning in a microcosm how to do that with Alan. I feel like she doesn't help Alan for because of this very same reason. Like she's not, she's like, chooses to fuck with those Wall Street guys instead of helping Alan because she probably doesn't think of herself as someone who's capable of doing good. And that's like her trajectory. Oh, this is just so hit. This is hitting me. Oh. <laughs> I knew I'd get you with my sincerity, Bob. Oh, you're just blabbering on and on <sighs> about like emotions and sincerity <laughs> and pain. That's what this show is all about, baby. It's just like, God fucking damn it. <laughs> Shut up. You love it, bitch. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Well, I think that's uh that's pretty much the end yeah, of our journey. Our hour is up. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you next week for our next therapy session. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Um thank you all you beautiful people out there for tuning in with us this week. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hi how are you to become a patron. We would really appreciate it. Helps us keep making these adventures into our own hearts and minds, which seems like some of you enjoy so mm. if you enjoy the show we would love your support if you're able and we will talk to you next week when we go on some kind of other expedition of text and consciousness that's right that's right Shavuot Tov Shavuot Tov